Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello, and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of August 24th. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined again today by Josh Blank, director of research for the Texas Politics Project. And today we want to talk a little bit of Texas legislature. What do you think, Josh? I love Texas legislature. I can't wait. This is, I, I always have these cycles where when I'm in the legislature, I'm like, God, I can't wait for elections. And then once I'm in elections, I'm like, ah, oh, I can't wait for the legislature. And we're in a, we're in that point of the year where I'm, I'm ready for the legislature. All right. Well, you know, what we'll do is we'll thread the needle with both, but let's go, let's, let's go deep, <laughs> deep into hashtag text ledge land. No, I didn't say I could avoid and, any of these things. <laughs> and we'll, we'll start with, um, talking a little bit about you know, we talk about public opinion in this podcast a lot. Today, we're going to talk about, you know, the opinions of a very narrow segment of the public. That is mm. uh, the opinion of House members uh, in Texas. So a couple of weeks ago, a um, little less than a couple of weeks ago, the chairman of the House Administration Committee, uh, State Rep. Charlie Guerin from Fort Worth, released the results of a survey of House members' attitudes uh, about the operation of the House and, and by extension, the Capitol in response to the pandemic. And that survey had been distributed initially by Quorum Report. They kind of made it public for their subscribers. But since then, it's, you know, it's been circulating. I think uh, people had it. The questionnaire was made up of 38 questions and it included 13 open-ended items. The, the document that was circulating was a pretty rough output from SurveyMonkey. And so... We took a look at that. We're interested in it for a lot of the reasons you're talking about, John. Rated graphics for most of the responses, including the open-ended responses, and to the extent that we had, you know, probably the major value add that we could at least say we we added was that we coded those open-ended responses when appropriate, and some of them were just general inquiries that made no sense to code. Um, and so we then produced all those graphics, put them on our website, and you'll find that in our blog at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And if you just follow the, the link to the blog, you'll find it. And we'll put a little flag on there when we get done recording this. Um, House members responded at least, you know, 116 of the 150 House members responded at least partially to the questionnaire, although not all of those 116 responded to all 38 questions, just to clear the clear the um you know the underbrush there and you know we don't have any you know information like cross tabs we don't know what the party breakdown was we don't know you know gender you know any of this so we wish we did but we don't we don't even really know how many chiefs of staff rather than legislators responded though it was kind of fun in the open ended's it sure felt like there were a lot of legislators that did their own because, you know, Charlie Guerin got a lot of, well, Charlie, I think, in the open-ended responses. So, you, so you're saying you're saying that a staffer wouldn't have responded that way? Yeah, I, I wouldn't expect a lot of, hey, Charlie, from, from staff members. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, <Checking. laughs> 
Yes. Yeah. But it's good. So that's good social science. That is an assumption, but I think it's a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, so like, what does the survey tell us about thinking in the legislature limited as the data are? Although, you know, I, I'm saying that, you know, and almost like being defensive, but this is actually a really unusually good glimpse into what's going on in the House. I think because this came from House leadership, and I know that they were pretty aware of this, obviously, in the Speaker's office. You know, I think that's one of the reasons the response rate was pretty high, right? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, I mean, you were saying this is, I mean, this is more than a, just about how the capital, you know, should operate. The question is, how should the capital operate in the session that's coming up in 2021? So this is actually very practical and, and really... I mean, very, you know, meaningful for members in a lot of ways. And I mean, you're right. We don't know who didn't respond versus who did and whether there are, you know, let's say certain, you know, pockets of attitudes were missing because of the response rates. But the reality is, is this what was what we'd call, you know, put quote unquote, an elite survey, right? This is a very select group of people. And honestly, to have more than two thirds of them respond to most of the questions. Yeah, it may not be a perfect census you know, of, of what, of what, you know, <laughs> but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but it's pretty good. I mean, ultimately yeah. this gives you a sense of, I mean, I think this gives you a sense of the broad patterns, which is kind of yeah. what I think you get out of this. Lesson. Right? If you ever lesson, you want to do this again, please have Charlie Guerin send your poll out. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, and, and I think it's also like, as you kind of imply there, it also tells us something attitudinally, not just about, the operation during the session and or in the Capitol and some some things kind of respond to right away, but mm -hmm. most of it is about session, but also the underlying attitudes, particularly at a time when there's a lot of discussion about what should be done in other institutional public spaces like, you know, schools mm -hmm. and, you know, and just to kind of get into it, I mean, one of the, you know, at, at a basic level, there's a lot of evidence of just a general acceptance of basic social distancing containment protocols, right? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you look across the board here to sort of see what people favor or oppose. And they were asked, you know, again, there, as you said, there were about, you know, 30 some odd questions. A lot of them were closed ended, which means there were, you know, you could say, yes, I support this. No, I don't support this. And I did like that. There were a lot of just yes, no's. <laughs> a lot of yes, no's. It's fun. Uh, but basically, you know, we asked when, when they asked whether, you know, for basically social distancing guidelines, whether members favor or oppose them, what you found was, you know, pretty widespread approval of imposing the kinds of kinds of social distancing best practices that public health experts are suggesting. So 87% of the respondents uh, favor temperature checks for entry to the Capitol, designating member and staff entrances separate from public entrances, requiring daily temperature checks, requiring face masks. You get down to about 79% who say limiting floor access to essential staff only. That starts to get a little bit more complicated. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but for the most part, you know, we think about these sorts of things we expect of people, you know, basically monitoring symptoms, keeping social distance, uh, wearing masks. There's pretty much a, an ex a broad embrace of that across the Capitol. Now, that might surprise some people because they might say, well, they, this is the most political of political institutions. But as you know, you and I have been talking about a lot, this is based on an idea that not wearing a mask is like some sort of broad-based political statement when the reality is in all the polling that we've seen, both, both our own in Texas, others in Texas, others elsewhere, it's a small, you know, it's a minority of Republican voters who are kind of holding out against some of these social distancing protocols. But the inverse of that is also true, which is that it's the vast majority of Republican voters 
who are saying yes to masks, yes to social distancing. And you see that reflected in the membership too. It's, so it's not, you know, again, I think to the extent that these are surprising in terms of the embrace of social distancing, it's only against maybe a set of expectations that are, you know, not really supported. Right. The people that are standing outside buildings, you know, with signs screaming about not wearing a mask are not very representative, not only of the population, but, pro, you know, almost certainly in our, again, our polling shows this even of Republicans. And I think, you know, one of the things I really noticed here, I mean, you know, three quarters, 73% favored requiring testing, mm -hmm. right? Which is, you know, really gets right to the nub of it in a lot of ways. Now, there was a little less agreement on the criteria for opening the more fully, right? And what the timing of that should be. Um, although overall, you know, people, you know, a very small number of, uh, of members or a small share of members were ready to just open it up. I mean, only 5% said the criteria, the, the capital should be fully reopened when session starts. Um, you know, yeah, that's right. uh, only 8% said that it should, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, 11% said that it should be open, but at reduced capacity. You know, most people, you know, that, that had a view of this wanted to wait for safety measures, even though everybody wasn't exactly on the same page in this open-ended item. This wasn't a yes or no question. Right. right. This is something that we had to code. And so something important here is that, you know, people could provide multiple sort of criteria uh, for when basically the capital should be fully reopened. That's the point here. It's under what circumstances should the capital be fully reopened. So people could say, well, you know, this and that and, and, and this or something. So for those people, you know, they, they're basically endorsing three things, right? And so the idea is what are the things that people think are necessary? And you're right. I mean, what's, what I think is interesting is sort of twofold. One is, you know, the most common thing that, that members said was, well, when safety measures are implemented, which is basically saying to some extent, you know, you tell me, right? I mean, if you've got good safety yeah. measures, open it up. And the assumption is, is that that's, I think the assumption kind of underlying that is that that's going to happen, you know, but going back to the previous discussion, we, we were just, we just finished here, you know, 15% it should said it should be open right now. And ultimately that seems like a lot, but it's also consistent with, again, what we were saying, which is that, you know, there's about, no matter what we ask, there's somewhere around, uh, between eight and let's say 15 to 20% depending on the question who basically take the position that, you know, either, you know, basically take a position as if the virus is not a factor. Let's just put it that way. Right. Let's, that's, I think, the best way to put that, right? Yeah, I mean, within there, yeah, with, yeah, within then there's a lot of, there, there are some gradations, but, you know, I think it's fair to say, you know, there's some degree of denial in all of the, you know, well, right, there in, is, in a lot of that position, right? But I should point out that also, I mean, a quarter of the responses said, you know, when a vaccine is available, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, which is obviously much less clear. So, I mean, even between those two responses kind of at the top that got the garnered the most, you know, uh, endorsement, either, either when safety measures are implemented, very vague, right? Or when a vaccine is, ver is available, very concrete and likely kind of distant. And so, you know, even, I mean, on both sides, it's not like there's a even, there's not a widespread agreement here, I would say, looking at this item about exactly, you know, whether and how the capital should be reopened. Right, right. And so, you know, and so as we look at that, I think, you know, what it also points us to is a really, you know, kind of interesting universe of attitudes on access to the process, right? I mean, because, you know, there's this general line we've been talking, we've been kind of moving through these attitudes about, well, you know, how close are the, are the member, how close is the membership to, 
public opinion, uh, mm -hmm. you know, how are people thinking practically about this? But when you start looking at the internal management or you start looking at the access to the process, I mean, you go from attitudes, not just about, you know, it brings out attitudes, not just about the virus and the pandemic and the response, but also to, you know, how you're balancing that against the process and our expectations of transparency and access. And you see, I think more, more division on that, right? Well, I'd go even for, I'd say to some degree. No, no, and I'd go even further. I'd say, you know, you see this this sort of, you know, this friction between, you know, safety and transparency and access. But I think what I mean, what I wonder about, and you can you can only speculate on something like this, is also, you know, the extent to which members are trying to uh you know, to some extent handicap what the what the legislative session is going to look like, which is a pretty constant discussion right now. You know, is the legislature gonna you know, be laser focused on, you know, the budget and COVID and try to get out? Are they going to take on some of the other big issues? There's obviously redistricting. And so to some degree, there's almost already a bit of fatigue with the session before it's even begun, where some <laughs> yeah. people are saying, well, geez, you know, we really can't do much. And this dovetails with that, right? Because I mean, what you're talking about here ultimately is, you know, what kind of access do members think, you know, on the one hand are essentially, you know, let's just say essential to the functioning of government, you know, does that include people being able to physically come and be able to give testimony right. to their hearings on the one hand. You know, so there's that aspect to it. On the other hand, there's this, you know, I think public safety aspect, or, you know, let's just say member safety aspect and yeah. public safety aspect, which is just, you know, you got a bunch of, you know, members coming to the Capitol from all over the state. You have a bunch of individuals and groups coming to the Capitol from all over the state and bringing all those people into a closed, not super well ventilated space for long periods of time might not be super safe but, safe, but I also say there's a third aspect of this, which is, you know, this kind of, you know, which, again, we can't know from the survey, but this overall idea of, you know, well, what do you think the session is going to look like? And ultimately, you know, is it going to be, you know, I mean, I think there might be some sort of a question of, is it easier to get through what's going to be a very difficult session if we limit access? Now, again, I'm not, nobody's saying that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, you know, I, yeah. Uh, but, I don't know but, how call that from this, but well, I don't know how to call that from this either, but I think, you know, to the extent that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty here. I mean, you know, the idea between, you know, are you going to allow, who are you going to allow on the floor when talking about, you know, press access, uh, you know, are you going right. to allow well, people to mill about in the lobbies outside the legislature, whoever happens to do that? Right. right. Let's, are look, you gonna, let's look at, well, let's look at some of what yeah. they say. So, sure. I mean, you know, so basically when we say, when, you know, when the, the survey asked, you know, to your to one of your points, do you favor oppose permitting visitor groups in the ga gallery if you limit their size and number? So, you know, anybody that's been around a session, you know, knows right. that there are huge, you know, people have lobby days and, and capital day, you know, they're essentially mm -hmm. lobby days uh, during the session. And so you see these large groups of people all in, you know, dressed in the same color t-shirt or shirt wandering on the Capitol, and then they get recognized in the gallery. While 63% favored letting people in the gallery if their size and number were limited. So they want to throttle this to some degree. Um, but th there was another more general question that asked whether members favor or oppose permitting visitor groups in the gallery at all during sessions. Um, and 48% opposed it, 51% favored letting the groups in. That was one of the closest, mm -hmm. you know, divisions in opinion in, in the survey. 
which I thought was interesting, you know, so that's kind of like a public access, you know, and, you know, then there was also, you know, a similar kind of, you know, question, but you look at it from the staff and you also kind of like looked at this, would you favor or oppose limiting floor access to essential staff during the session? 79% favored that. And, you know, this gets us a little bit into kind of some of the inside baseball of, Mm -hmm. you know, who, you know, how people are thinking about this. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit offline that, you know, the media doesn't, media don't really appear much in this survey at all. (laughs) No, no, not much. um, But this is, you know, the, 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 the matter of limiting floor access is in part about that. Now, part of this is just straight public safety. We don't want to over, over interpret the result. Part of this is just trying to keep the floor less crowded. No, no, but I think but I think highlighting the importance of this result is key because I think, you know, when we looked at an open-ended that asked, you know, what practices and protocols do you believe are necessary in order to safely conduct the legislative session? And you look at some, you know, basically the the things that came up most frequently, you know, it was the things you'd expect. 42% of people mentioned masks, 32% mentioned social distancing, 16% mentioned frequent testing, 16% mentioned like frequent sanitizing, including like uh, the microphone cover on the back mic, right? Following expert guidance. Yeah, well, but I would honestly, think that but, would be pretty important. There's a lot of but, yelling and emoting that goes on back right, there. But, but right in the middle of all of those, you know, in between social distancing and frequent testing, 18% said, you know, limiting capacity or access to the Capitol. Now, I mean, ultimately, you know, whether or not you have to wear a mask at the Capitol is kind of a yes or no either thing people can understand. When you start talking about this question of limiting capacity and limiting access, it really raises a whole host of other questions about, well, right. who's access? What's the capacity? You know, what, you know, are we talking about, you know, basically the floor? Are we talking about committee hearings? Are we talking about the entire Capitol? And so ultimately it raises a lot more questions really than it answers. And the fact that it's so high on the list to me kind of indicates it's an interesting area to see, you know, how they handle this. Well, you know, and at a macro level, that's clearly what's going on with the leadership. They're kind of feeling out, you know, obviously, but they're feeling out where, where the points of conflict are going to be as they try to figure out what they're going to do. And particularly at a time when, you know, as with everything else, there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, who knows what this is going to look like come January when you have to adopt some rules. Well, and I think you hit it on the head there, which is they're trying to game out points of conflict. Because, I mean, one of the sort of interesting things about the survey was, you know, even though there were, you know, there are a large number of open-endeds, they usually dealt with one topic, maybe. But there were about three items that basically were meant to elicit from the members a sense of what what the punishment process should be. Essentially, if yeah. we do adopt these rules and, you know, a member or a, staff me- or a staffer decides not to wear a mask on the floor or not to, you know, socially distance or whatever. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, there were three open-ended questions that basically said, how do you want me to handle that? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, speaking of points of conflict and what you can see. And there was not a majority support for a very punitive effect. I mean, there's a plurality support, but not majority. No, I mean, basically, you know, I would say the the most common attitude was something to the effect of, well, you know, how, however you deal with, when that, with, with, with any other situation in which a member breaks a house rule in which you'd kind right. of say, okay, sure. Although there was, it. you know, I mean, I was interested though. I mean, there was a lot of that and I, you know, I saw, but there's also, you know, 43% did say restrict their access. That is to the floor, to hearings, to the building. So, you know, this but is I where say, I'd really like to see the tabs. 
<laughs> well, this is also where, I mean, this is something where I think, you know, it's, it's one of the things about, you know, taking open endings and just coding them. I think, you know, that's true, right? I mean, I think the easiest, you know, response, I mean, I think the easiest response cognitively and practically is to say, well, you restrict the floor access. But there were a number of people who either in that comment or another comment said, you know, I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> right. You know, I don't know if you can prohibit a member from participating in the process or if you want to. And I think that's ultimately, I mean, ultimately that is the rub here, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, is, is the house going to go, you know, so far in terms of the enforcement of its rules that it's going to take members out of the process who, you know, I mean, I, when you put it this way, it sounds crazy, but endanger the safety of the body, you know, are they going to do that? Well, clearly that's an open question as of right now. Right. And then there's also, you know, there were a, a slew, or not a slew, but there was a little bunch of questions that also had implications for advocacy, you know, mm-hmm. you know, th- think of it for various reasons. It's the lobby, but there's also, you know, larger kind of public access issues here. But, you know, about half said that they would limit visitors to their office, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or go to a kind of an appointment only system. Mm-hmm. Yet only a third said they'd limit food in the office. So, well, you know, I mean, come you on, know, you can't change the whole, you, <laughs> you can't break the system here, um, which, you know, all of which was pretty interesting, but all of which I think is causing a certain amount of, you know, uh, not a certain, a lot of discussion in the professional capital community about what access is going to look like. And, and, you know, frankly, how offices will use this to help, you know, increase the filter who they have to talk to and who they don't have to talk to, you know, and who, you know, who goes into a situation like that with an advantage and who doesn't, Um, you know, and so I think, you know, as you think about how advocacy works and what different people's skill sets and networks are and, you know, how they go into this, you know, I mean, if you're sort of one of say, um, you know, if you're on a big lobby team and your job is entertainment, you know, that's not so good. (laughs) Right. Right. So as we're talking about the, you know, you it was you set this up nicely at the beginning by talking about how you were, you know, interested in, you know, sometimes pivoting. Like when it's election time, we get, you know, you said it, but I think both of us feel that way. You get kind of sick of elections, and uh-huh. then at a certain point in the in the legislative process, I would say probably about early late March, maybe early That's April. What I, I was going to say early April. That was good. God, you know, could this could we? I just I'd love to talk about something else. Um, but let's talk about the intersection of this, the election and the legislature and the big story on that front. You know, I mean, there's two there's two big storylines going on here, one of which we won't have time to get on t- today, but I think we'll come back to pretty soon, which is the overall state of play and, you know, the the big parlor game in the professional world about the chances of there being major partisan change, most most directly the House flipping from Republican to Democrat. But let's focus in on something that ultimately gets us to that. You know, the big election story in the last week or so has been Senate District 30, which is going to be vacated, but is not yet as a result of uh, Senator Pat Fallon's selection to be on the Republican ticket to run for the seat that John Ratcliffe has vacated now that on his second try, he will be director of national intelligence. And there's now, and there have been a lot of people kind of, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about this for quite a while. And so there's three big contenders right now, or three contenders, we think, and we'll have a final read on this on Friday, which is the filing deadline. Um, you know, most prominently in the capital community, anyway, State Representative Drew Springer, um, who 
you know, it's been an open secret that he's been sort of strategizing to run for the Senate seat since it became clear there was there was likely to be movement. Um, Denton Mayor Chris Watts is kind of on the bubble. He said he's going to do it. He resigned as Denton Mayor, so it looks like he's going to do it. But we'll, I think that is yet to be confirmed. And I'm, I suspect there are a lot of people trying to talk him out of it. Yeah, I was and then most that. dramatically, the one and only Shelley Luther of um, Salon a la mode fame, <laughs> who is looking to transition into Senate a la mode, I guess. Um, and and she, it's a, it's a know, citizen legislature. Yeah, this would, yes. <laughs> well, yes, it, it is a citizen legislature. Um, and this is, you know, she, you know, she Shelley Luther, you know, was the proprietress of the Salon a la mode that defied, you know, was, you know, in a, in a highly visible and, and somewhat underwritten way, defied an early quarantine order and rose to you know, sort of prominence, at least in the state, and actually got some national coverage by, you know, very publicly saying that it was a violation of her liberty for her to not be able to do business under a quarantine order. Well, and and ultimately she got sent to jail for it. I mean, because essentially the judge asked her to stop and or, you know, apologize, and she refused, so she got sent to jail at that point. And, you know, that became, you know, prominent mostly because of, you know, Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick and other, you know, prominent politicians taking up her cause. As a she gave Ted of, Cruz a haircut. She gave Ted Cruz a haircut. And not in the so. way that Beto O'Rourke almost did. Um, Ooh, okay. <laughs> he just gave him, yeah, Beto just gave him a trim. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and and this is just, be, and you know, but, you know, this has really rolled into a much bigger kind of issue. So, you know, I think there's two things to look at here. First, just the race itself. Um you know, shaping up, you know, with, with Denton Mayor Chris Watts is maybe just kind of an X factor. Drew Springer is being billed as the insider, and I think with good reason. Um, he was obviously kind of ready for this when uh, Governor Abbott announced that the special election would be, you know, or last week, when he announced that the special election would be held September 29th. Drew Springer was obviously ready. The, his Twitter account then rolled out a bunch of, you know, pre-produced uh, graphics with endorsements from, you know, a reasonably broad range of Texas legislators. Mm-hmm. And he was definitely ready to go. And then this week uh, he was endorsed by Texans for lawsuit, for lawsuit reform, which is a sign of, you know, Republican institutional support, if ever there was one. Mm-hmm. Um and Shelley Luther then, who has defied Greg Abbott kind of famously and, and in a, you know, an interview a couple of weeks ago with Jonathan Tyler, who's been a guest on the podcast multiple times, you know, was, was pretty critical of Governor Abbott, I think it's, it's fair to say, and has been a thorn in his side since all of this kind of unfolded. And so when Greg Abbott called the special session for September 20, or the special, special election, election for September yeah. 29th, you know, what that meant was that the filing deadline was, you know, a week away and early voting is going to depend, is going to start on September 14th. Wait, this so is widely seen as very advantageous for Drew Springer and very indicative of people's on the inside and certainly in the governor's office and in many corners of the legislature. Shall we say their lack of interest in seeing Shelley Luther join the uh, the upper body? Oh, so strategy is what you're saying. <laughs> 
It's funny. I mean, you, you know, and you say, and you might, you know, if you're listening, you say, well, why are we talking about this? But it's interesting. I mean, this is sort of, there's something about this, this little race and everything that's kind of an interesting little microcosm. I mean, I, I think the discussion that we've been having a lot, you know, around sort of the pandemic is sort of the role of the executive branch, you know, headed by Greg Abbott and the role of the legislature or really the legislature's absence in any of the state's sort of response to the pandemic. And so, you know, we've been talking about this, this a lot and, and, you know, we've, and I'm, we've been thinking about it a lot and I, you know, I've been, and the more I've been thinking about it, you know, there is sort of a sense on the one hand of, you know, a, there's a discussion to be had about whether the legislature does or does not want to be more involved. And that's sort of a separate discussion. But then the question of sort of, you know, Abbott's, you know, handling of it vis-a-vis the legislature is an interesting one. And in particular, you know, the argument for Abbott maybe involving the legislature more in the process to some degree is, you know, for what it's worth is to, you know, expand the coalition and also, uh, you know, distribute some of the responsibility for the state's response a little bit. But ultimately, I think this race actually highlights some of the difficulty of that. On the one hand, you know, you, you just to set the Democrats for a second, the Democrats have been obviously very critical of the governor's response. But, you know, in a lot of ways, Shelley Luther is is an interesting representation, not only of, you know, where there is uh, pushback uh, among some of the Republican coalition uh, against basically public safety measures uh, to fight the pandemic that Abbott has, has, you know, really been forced to engage in in a lot of ways, like requiring mask wearing and things like that, uh, on the one hand, and sort of Republicans on the other who hang their hat on running good, efficient government. Is kind of the the is is their sort of self described calling card of the party. I would say you know, ultimately the thing about this race that's interesting is that you know Abbott you know I wouldn't say Abbott created Shelley Luther, but he certainly gave her this opportunity to then be someone you know who's basically part of the reason that Abbott doesn't want to involve the legislature in this. I mean, to be quite honest, is that there's a, a large you know there's a, a large enough no, coterie one of many one of many there's one of well there's one of many but there's a large enough coterie of Republicans in the House who would already make a special session difficult in terms of if the goal is to be more proactive on the virus. Not to mention the fact that you know in the Senate the lieutenant governor has essentially you know is yeah I mean I mean, I mean it's not taking yeah it I mean I think there's you know there are two big problems I mean one yeah the 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 huge problem is the Senate and. You know, you're giving the lieutenant governor a forum if you were to call a special session. Again, special session is such an abstraction at this point. Well, you know, there's also a, the problem of you know what happens with the speakership. Should you call a right? Should you call a, a special session? And that's that's also an issue. But I think I think you're right in that it. Well, and the special session is just an abstraction of a way that you might involve. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, more. I mean it's a. Yeah. It's right. like how many angels are dancing on the head of that pen uh, in terms right. of the possibility of a special session getting called by by this governor at this time. No. But I do think that, um, you know, you're right to sort of point out, I mean, for people that like follow this, this, you know, brewing kind of, you know, model of the inter- of the Republican Party is, you know, riven by these factions and the kind of center, you know, the, you know, I don't know what you would call it, you know, far right versus the distance, right, kind of fighting over these things, you know, has been kind of scrambled in the last few months of the pandemic, even though it's been brewing from the very beginning. And it br- it's bringing to the surface some of the things that were there all along as the governor was trying to figure out how to balance the politics of the pandemic response. And we've talked about a lot about that. I think it's going to be tempting for a lot of people to see this as a real bellwether heat check for that, given just how Republican that district is. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I mean, the 
the district, I think the last time you know, that Fallon ran in that district, he won with 75% of the vote. So right. it's kind of an interesting, I mean, it's tempting to see this as an interesting laboratory for Republican politics, although I think there's a lot of qualification for that, that I think we can kind of probably bring back as we put this in the context of the broader kind of struggle over the legislature that's coming up in in 2020 and then how that plays out in 2021 and what those contingencies are. So I think with that, I'll say thanks for listening. Um, we'll be back next week. We'll, you know, if you can find this podcast at all times on Stitcher, Apple podcasts and Spotify, uh, you can find lots of supporting data for this. If you found this podcast in one of those places, go to our website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. You can look at the, graphics for the data on the legislative survey, we, the House survey we, we talked about earlier, and all kinds of other data representations, blog posts, and other kind of goodies if you're interested in Texas politics and government, in particular, the Texas legislature. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.